Hello aus Deutschland. Hey son from Sveria. Welcome to Black History Month. Thanks to Carter G. Woodson for launching Negro History Week in the U.S. in 1926. When America leads, Europe follows. By 1969, Negro History Week was Black History Month. And after visiting the U.S. in the 1970s, Ghanaian-born Akayaba Adesebu, a special projects officer at the Greater London Council, founded the U.K.'s version of Black History Month in 1987. Since then, it spread to Ireland, the Netherlands, and Germany. If you know of any more countries in Europe celebrating, let us know. We have four outstanding guests for our first Black History Month special. Four episodes, four women making history while examining our past. We talk with filmmaker Daphne DeSinto, historian Faida Jailer, doll maker Ellen Burdett, and cultural archivist Monica Wells. I'm not sure how we'll top this next year. Oh, oh, wait, we're talking about Black history. We'll never run out of fascinating stories. Welcome to Black History Month on the Black Women in Europe podcast. We're so excited to include Dr. Monique Wells in this part of our first Black History Month special on the podcast. She's one of our power listeners. She's based in Paris for decades. And one of the things that she's passionate about is an African-American artist who was in Paris. I'll let her tell you when and where. His name is Wolfhard Delaney. And Monique, thank you. Well, Thank you, Adrienne, for having me. I'm just thrilled to talk about this particular artist who you refer to as Beaufort, and some people do call him Beaufort, but from um, the people in his hometown to people who've known him around the world, they call him Buford. And that's probably the Southern pronunciation, the Southern US pronunciation of his name. So neither is incorrect. Um, French people certainly call him Beaufort because that's the way that it's spelled. And a French person wouldn't know that that was not a French name. Well, I'm American. So, I'm going to say Beaufort. Is that correct? Beaufort. Beaufort. His family and friends. Thank you. Okay. Hey, how All did right. you discover him and how did you become so passionate about his work? Well, this is a, a long story. I won't give you all the gory details. They're not even gory. They're actually quite exciting. But um, suffice it to say that my trail to discovering Buford Delaney began with an article that I was writing many years ago about African-American grave sites in and around Paris. My husband and I have a business called Entree to Black Paris. At that time, it was called Discover Paris. And our whole premise was to expose Paris to visitors, tourists and travelers as it was reflected in their own interests. And we were getting more and more and more and more African-American clients. And so I was looking for information to share with these people. And I decided to write an article about African-Americans, famous African-Americans who were buried in and around Paris. And I was looking for information about James Baldwin. And when I found out that James Baldwin, who I knew died in the South of France, but I didn't know exactly where he was buried. Um, I thought he might've been buried in the South of France, but no, his body was uh, repatriated to the US. But I did find out that his dear friend and mentor, 
Buford Delaney was buried in a cemetery close to Paris, just outside in a Paris suburb. And that's how I began researching him. I went out to the cemetery to find his grave with the intent of taking a picture of it and talking about him in relationship to James Baldwin. And what I found just changed my world. Um, this cemetery, which is called TA in a town called TA outside of Paris to the south. Um, it's an, a magnificent cemetery, but there are several divisions that are paupers divisions. So it looks like they're not very well kept. The stones are not, they don't look good. And in this particular division, Division 86, I, I found this place and I was appalled because it looked half empty. The weeds were literally up to my knees and the stones that were there were crumbling just in very bad condition. And I didn't know that Buford did not have a stone. So I, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to find his grave, not understanding that he didn't have a stone. The way that French cemeteries generally work is that there's a there are rows and then there are plots. And the rows and plots were not marked. And so I didn't know where to begin. And finally, I saw two guards coming by and I asked them if they could find this particular grave. And each of them came into the division and they walked it off independently. And they came to a space that was very weedy and it had a ceramic flower arrangement there. And they said, this is it individually. So I took pictures of that and I went back home and I shared these pictures with Buford's friends. Um, and they said, oh, you know, someone re recognized that little flower arrangement. I didn't even know that that had any significance. Um, and they started telling me these stories about, oh, thank God he's still there. And um, I should have prefaced the story by saying that when I found out from them where to go to find Buford's grave, they asked me if he were still buried there. And I said, well, why wouldn't he be? And they said, well, don't you know, in France, you don't keep your grave forever. Someone has to continue to pay for it or they can dig you up. And it had been 30 years since Buford had died. And so they were afraid that he was not there, literally. And I went to the, the cemetery. I went to the office before I you know, ventured out into the cemetery to try to find the grave. And they told me that, yes, he was still in the ground, but that he would be exhumed that year. And this is September, so this is late in the year, mind you. And so I went out there, and as I told you, um, I found this grave in just an appalling condition. And I took pictures of it, and I sent them to his friends, and they were like, oh, my God, he's still there. So what can we do to save the grave? And mind you, no one, none, none of these friends is in Paris. They're not in France, even. So I am acting on their behalf now. And what started out as a sort of a journalistic project turned into this mission to save a piece of African-American history. This is yeah. fascinating. This is absolutely fascinating from, yeah. I mean, and I can visualize you in the, well, I don't want to say in the weeds, but with the weeds up to your knees and to have these two gentlemen independently do it. This is fascinating. So this is why, okay, there, I've seen there's a project, there was a project for marker, grave marker. Yes, that started it. That started it. And I founded a French nonprofit called Les Amis de Buford Delaney, which means Friends of Buford Delaney, to raise the money to place the stone there. 
And I started the I started the nonprofit because, okay, so in the first instance, the I got permission from the cemetery system, TA Cemetery, even though it's outside of Paris, it's part of a bigger cemetery system that belongs to Paris. And I had to petition the main office to even pay the money to keep his grave intact. So his friends sent me that money. It was less than 300 euros. They sent me the money. The cemetery accepted it. They said, now, mind you, you are not family. These people who have sent this money are not his family. So if any of his family ever comes forward, they can do whatever they want with his remains. They can dig up your stone. They can dig him up if they want. They can do whatever. I'm like, okay, you know, it's been 30 years. Nobody's come forward. I don't think they're coming now. Um, I, I just want to do this for these friends. And as they're telling me their stories about him and why this is so important to him, he becomes more important to me, not just as a, a Black person, you know, who was important to James Baldwin, but also he's becoming important to me personally. And um, so I'm able to save the grave. And then his friends are so ecstatic. They say, well, we want to place a stone. And again, I'm the only person here. And they ask me, can you find out how much it would cost to place a stone there, what it would take, et cetera, et cetera. And so I did that on their behalf. And I'm becoming more and more involved in the story myself. And I found this French nonprofit association to raise the money for the stone. And we were successful at doing that. And we laid the stone over the summer of 2010. So I started out on this process in, in um, September of 2009, when I first learned about the grave, et cetera. And we were able to lay the stone over the summer of 2010. That's a and remarkable turnaround. That's unheard was. of, isn't it? Did things move that quickly in France? or anywhere? Well, we were, we were able to raise the money. That was the hard part. And then once we were able to do that, then the people who you know, to create the stone and everything, you know, they actually did that fairly quickly. And so we were able to get the stone laid over the summer. And in October uh, of 2010, we had a ceremony at the grave site. So we had, um, oh, I guess it was about 20 people come out to the grave site, including a pastor from the American church, which it turned out was where Buford's funeral had been held. And the pastor who presided over our graveside ceremony actually knew the pastor who spoke at Buford's funeral. I mean, there were just all of these serendipitous things that were happening. Um, the U.S. Embassy supported us, the ambassador's residence and the U.S. Embassy supported us in the fundraising uh, effort. And we were able to have a reception after the graveside ceremony at the space where the American consulate um, was once um, housed, the consulate moved. Um, the consulate moved after a while, but we were able to use this space. And it was just, it was magic. And I, in the fundraising process, began a blog called Les Abis de Buford Delaney. And I started this blog in 2009 to raise awareness of the story and to raise money for the stone. And when we laid the stone and when we had the reception, the gravesite ceremony and the reception, um, which by the way, these were filmed. Okay, so an African-American filmmaker who had been here for many, many, many years was interested in the story and he filmed the ceremony and he filmed um, at the reception. We can um, and I that. felt like, 
Pardon? Can we we can include the films, the links to the films in this uh, the notes. So that's that's not available yet because that's another part oh. of the story. We're actually doing a documentary about Buford now, called "So Splendid a Journey," and those film clips will be a part of that documentary. But we don't have the. I don't know if you know how difficult it is to get a film made, um, but if you're not just rolling in money yourself. Then... No, I am. That's why I'm saying, again, this is amazing. That's why I say, can we share the clip? So that's in the work. Amazing. Okay. Yeah. I can share the trailer for you, but we don't have the whole film. Okay. Okay. So, um, so I had started to blog to raise awareness and to raise money. And when we had finished all of this, I felt like, oh my God, this is just a fantastic accomplishment. And I felt like, okay, I'm finished. I can go on to other things, but excuse me. I was gonna say he wasn't finished with you yet. He wasn't, he was not finished with me. And so I, I put the blog down for well, about three months, but I couldn't, I, I had to pick it up again. And I've been blogging about him ever since. I've been blogging about him since 2009. And um, just with a couple of, of breaks, I took like a six week break this summer. But other than that, and that sort of three month hiatus near the beginning, I've been blogging about him every week. Well, why is there, or how is there so much to talk about? What is the, how do you lay it out on your blog? Like, is it a chronological bio uh, biography? No, it's not chronological. Um, there are all kinds of elements in the blog. So I started to write as much as I could about Buford's life, his life in Paris, because that was my initial reason for investigating him in the first place, um, to find out about Black people in Paris. And so what did he do in Paris? Where did he live? I looked at all the places that he lived. He lived in three different places um, in the city. Well, actually two places in the city and one place in another Paris suburb, again, to the south a little bit, but, you know, available on public transportation. Monique, which and years were these? Which so, years? So Buford came to Paris in 1953 and he died here in 1979. And he, he spent here uninterrupted in the Paris area. Um, from 1953 to 1979. He spent a few years in the Paris suburb of Clamart, and that's where he had a significant breakthrough with regard to the kind of work that he was producing. And he lived in an apartment with James Baldwin there um, for some time, and Baldwin was always coming and going. So um, they, they would spend time in this apartment house there, but often Baldwin was away. So sometimes they would actually be in the same apartment. Sometimes Baldwin was in a room above. I mean, there are a lot of little details there that, and I don't want to get bogged down in that, but um, Buford in 1961 had a mental episode where he was traveling alone and he had always wrestled with inner voices. Um, some people might say today that he was had, had schizophrenia. We do not have that particular diagnosis made on him officially. Um, some people might say today that he was bipolar. We don't know really because this was 
years and years ago, but he did have uh, mental difficulties. He was mentally frail. And when he traveled, these voices really got the better of him, frequently got the better of him. They were always very critical. Um, they talked about him being a poor man, a black man, a gay man. Uh, and he actually began to paint to try to calm those voices. And eventually he used those voices to feed his art. So he, it, so it sort of, the table sort of turned and the voices helped him produce as opposed to him producing art to quiet them. Um, wow. Okay. So, so there are a lot of reasons to be interested in Buford Delaney. Buford Delaney was born in Knoxville, Tennessee in 1901. So he was born in the Southern United States at a time when Jim Crow was king. He was born into a preacher's family, a religious family, and yet he was a gay man. He had to deal with these things. He left at the age of, let's see, he left in 1923. So he was either 22, 23. I guess he was probably 22 going on 23 at the time that he left uh, Knoxville to go to Boston. And he was sponsored to go to Boston by a traditional Southern white man who despite all of his beliefs about black people was compelled by Buford's talent and who took Buford under his wing, mentored him. And when he felt that he could not do any more for Buford, gave him some money, not a whole lot of money because he didn't have a whole lot himself. Um, you know, he wasn't rolling in dough. Um, but he did give Buford money and he introduced him to certain people in Boston. And he said, go up here and learn more at various professional schools in Boston. Buford never had enough money to enroll full time in an art school, but he did take classes when he could afford it at several art institutions in Boston. And that's where he started to meet um, very prominent African-Americans in Boston and um, also white people who were very much involved in um, sort of elevating the condition of black people at that time. So this was the early twenties. He lived there until 1929 when he moved to New York and he moved to New York right when the crash happened. <clears throat> um, and he was in New York from 1929 until 1953. He met James Baldwin in New York. Baldwin was introduced to Buford by a high school friend of his who was artistically inclined. And for Baldwin, Buford was the first black man that he had ever met who was making a living as an artist. And he, he inspired Baldwin to believe that Baldwin would be able to one day make a living as a writer, as a literary artist. And they became fast friends and they remained friends until um, the end of Buford's life. And while Buford was a mentor to Baldwin, when Baldwin was in New York, when they both ended up in Paris, Baldwin got here first in 1948, Buford came in 1953. Baldwin absorbed Buford into his entourage here. And as Buford became more and more mentally and physically fragile, Baldwin became his sort of mentor, if you will. He took on that protector role whereas Buford served that way for Baldwin when, when they were in the US. Wow, um, 
I find this incredibly amazing. Um, one, because you have these two great men who are together, like two great creative minds together and basically taking care of themselves, each other, but also that, to be honest, I've never heard of uh, Buford and that he led this really unusual and very interesting life is, and he's definitely great find Adrian. This is definitely <laughs> a, um, like an unknown history. Cause that's basically what we're trying to do is to uncover histories that people aren't, aren't really aware of, or mm -hmm. maybe don't know very much about. Um, mm -hmm. I'm yeah. So he lived in Paris until he was, until he died. And what did he do while he was there? What type of things did he do? Well, mostly he painted. Um, he was a painter, so he was an artist. He was a visual artist. He was a painter. He painted and he did works on paper. So if you know anything about the art world, you know that um, even though you actually paint with watercolor, you don't call a watercolor a painting. This was something that I learned as I was learning about this man and learning about the art world. Um, he... <clears throat> He poured his life into his art and he explored more and more as he came here. He had already started to experiment with a genre of art called abstract expressionism when he was in New York, but he became a fulminant abstract expressionist after moving to Paris. He never did give up doing figurative work and he's uh, he especially did lots and lots of portraits. He did over 12 portraits of James Baldwin alone. He did many, many portraits of himself, self-portraits. <clears throat> um, and he did portraits of many, many other people. When he was in Boston, he was learning, he was perfecting his craft, if you will. Um, but he was already being introduced to um, impressionist works and things like that because he was going to all the be best Boston museums. When he moved to New York, he started to experiment more with just more abstract forms of figurative painting. And when he moved to Paris, he went full abstract expressionism. But again, he never did fully give up figurative work. So he was always experimenting and he was, he was traveling in lots of different artistic circles. He had um, a circle of friends who were African-American artists. He had European artist friends, okay? Um, and these circles didn't necessarily intersect. Uh, he would go over here and talk with people. He would go over there and talk with people. He really explored the whole concept of the, the root of what he believed abstract work meant with European artists, okay? And, and some of them weren't even painters, some of them were sculptors. So he had a very rich 
uh, professional life here. And even with all of that, he still struggled desperately to earn money from his painting. He yeah. did end up he did end up getting a couple of patrons who would purchase works from him and who would there was one there were a couple of people who actually showed his work and did major shows of his work um but he wasn't he he wasn't just sort of killing it uh with regard to sales baldwin helped him apply for grants and most often he did not get those grants and when he would happen to get a grant he would actually give his money away so there was there were there are just all kinds of elements in the man and the artist, in the man and the artist are, are inseparable. But the way that Buford was brought up, um, brought up in a poor environment, um, extremely generous man, um, one has to wonder what it was about his upbringing that would not allow him to hold on to money when he got it. Hmm. Well, you and know, then, I was just thinking we if you're not taught financial literacy, I hope yes. you can hear me. You know, you yes. just don't, you know, you, just like you, the, the people that hit the lottery or sports athletes that have these huge contracts. If you're not taught and people that I know what you mean, you know, you would think, oh, I, I've never had it. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to be frugal. Mm -hmm. I'm going to this, that and the other. But if you just don't know and then a mix of generosity. Mm -hmm. That was yeah. his, that was it. Yeah, I think it was probably his generosity more than anything. I mean, if you if you care about people and you don't care about money, mm -hmm. then, you know, it's easy. I, I say that from experience. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to just, yeah. you know, here you go. You're poor. You need help. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, during his lifetime, was he considered a great artist? I mean, or was he a bit undiscovered, maybe? Um, well, when he was in New York, he was actually discovered. So he actually had a one-man show at the Whitney. Oh. Before the Whitney became the Whitney Museum of American Art, it was galleries, the Whitney Galleries. I can't remember the exact name. But um, he did have a one-person show there. And there was another person in New York who showed his work fairly frequently, but it wasn't selling like hotcakes, if you will. Mm. So he was, he was critically acclaimed, but his work wasn't selling. Um, and what else did I wanna say about that? So, and the same thing happened when he was in Paris. So actually, if you know the, the man, the writer, Henry Miller. Um, Henry Miller and Buford Delaney were very good friends. And Henry Miller wrote a little chat book uh, about Buford. And when that was published, Buford became a sort of a mini celebrity in Greenwich Village. And people would sort of hang out in front of his apartment hoping to see him and whatnot. But he's still living in dire poverty you know, and, and that notoriety, if you will, or that fame, if you will, in quotes, wasn't helping his work sell. Yeah. Um, he, 
Is is the reason why his grave was unmarked because of his poverty? Yes. That, yeah. He died after four years in a mental institution in Paris. He had no money. He did not have a will. Wow. His what, works. Oh, um, I was just going to say what happened to his work, but you were going to tell me anyway. <laughs> so, um, so James Baldwin was really in charge of a little committee that the French government actually set up to handle Buford's affairs when he was in this mental institution. It's a hospital called St. Anne's and it still exists. Um, and Baldwin gathered up a lot of work and sent um, a lot of it to the United States for a show. This was while Buford was still in the hospital. And that show was mounted at the Studio Museum in Harlem. And other works remain here Buford's work was sort of scattered to the winds. Um, and when he died, there was no single sort of focal point for gathering it together. His brother, Joseph, who was also a painter and also a fairly sort of um, not as well known as Buford, I will say, but still not an unknown painter. His works are in collections. Um, his brother had some of the work some of the work stayed in New York. A lot of the work stayed here. There's so many paintings that are in private collections. So it's, it's just all over the place. And dying without a person who was in charge of the estate, really, just exacerbated uh, that problem. Um, I, in writing about Buford, doing this blog, began to turn my attention to his art after I felt that I had exhausted everything that I could find out about his life. And in starting to write about his art, I eventually came across the attorney who was appointed to administer the estate because for years there was nobody. Um, and so this man wouldn't even, I would I try to contact him and he wouldn't even write back to me because there were problems with um, works being stolen and things like that. And he just wasn't at liberty to talk. And finally, he wrote to me one day and he said, you know, I've been following your blog for years. I'm sorry, I have not been able to communicate with you before now. Um, now I have been released. I can... I can talk to you now. And he's been supporting the blog ever since. And so now when I write about a piece, um, if there's a piece of work that I cannot verify the provenance for, provenance meaning you can trace from the artist's hand to where it is now. Um, if, I've not, if I'm not able to verify that, or if you know, it just looks like it's something for sale and I wanna talk about it on the blog, but I have to, confirm that it's an authentic piece. So I will go to him. Uh, we've, there's just, it's just such an intricate and far reaching story. I actually founded my US nonprofit, the Wells International Foundation to do a show of Buford's work in Paris because even with blogging about him for years and years and years, and even with getting two plaques 
that honor him placed on the facades of buildings in the Montparnasse district of Paris, which is where he lived, I still could not, I did not feel that I had done enough to bring this man's story forward. And so I decided that I wanted to do the ultimate tribute to Buford Delaney would be to do a show of his work. And because, and thanks to the blog, I had met all of these people over the course of the years, people who collected his work, people who knew somebody who had collected it, et cetera. And I was able to co contact all of these people and say, I want to do a show of original Buford Delaney works. Would you loan me your pieces for this purpose? And they said, yes. And I created my US nonprofit, the Wells International Foundation to raise money to do that show because I needed to raise US dollars to do this show as opposed to euros to lay the stone. Right, right, wow. Um, I, that people have his work still and that people would actually still wanna see it. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's still in a lot of galleries too, isn't it? Oh God, absolutely. And yeah. it's, in, it's in major museums. Buford Delaney is in the Whitney's collection. It is in MoMA's collection. You don't know MoMA, it's the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It's at the Met in New York. There are pieces at the Smithsonian, at the National Portrait Gallery and at the American Art Museum of the Smithsonian and at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. There wow. are three pieces at the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, there is a masterpiece by Buford Delaney at the Centre Pompidou in Paris. His work is in major museums but is it actually on display? That's another question. Mm. We can talk about the gross underrepresentation of African-American artists and women artists, artists of color in general, women artists in these major institutions. Who is deciding whose work gets purchased? Who is deciding whose work gets shown? Even if you have it in your collection, is it in the basement or is it on a wall? where people right. can see it. All, yeah. if you want to, I that, mean, all of this. Monique, what is that called? That is, um, there's some, it's a justice issue in there. Um, an equity Social issue. Social justice, yes, yes, equity, yes, absolutely. Is your, is your um, foundation, Les Amis, mm -hmm. uh, what are you, what are you working for? It was, if I remember, it was originally set up to help get the gravestone, now that you, yes. Mark, you've achieved that. What other, it's the, the U.S. foundation was for the, for the show. What can the, the, the French based, what else can you achieve with the French based association? So the French based association is maintaining the grades because the site, even though, oh, and, and this is another interesting part of the gravesite story. So we laid the stone. The stone has to be cared for, otherwise it will begin to crumble just like all the other ones in, in that division. And so I have signed a contract with the company that actually created the stone. They also maintain gravestones. And so they have to go out a couple of times a year, clean it, make sure that it's not damaged. And if it is damaged, they need to tell me about that so that we can look at how to get it repaired. And so that's an ongoing process. The grave site itself, as I mentioned earlier in this call, theoretically, it would have needed to continue to be paid for. When we raised the money to place the stone, we also raised enough money to, to pay to keep the grave intact. 
because, you know, I, like I said, the grave is sort of leased. And the cemetery system would not allow us to pay the renewal because we're not family. So I'm like, okay, so we've laid this stone. We spent these thousands of dollars to put this stone there. And yet, you know, in so many years, if no one pays to keep the actual grave there, then they can still dig him up. So just to show you how infectious and how powerful Buford's story is, a white woman, a white French woman who was the deputy at the, the office at the TA cemetery told me, she said, you know what? She said, they're not gonna let you pay again, but because this man is a quote unquote celebrity, because the US government, I'm not the US government, sorry, the French government owns his work. We can petition to have him added to our celebrity list. And therefore his grave, you won't have to pay to keep the grave there anymore. You will only have to pay for the upkeep of the stone. And she came out with this just on her wow. own, you know? That's amazing. Yeah. And so yeah. It, she did that work. I didn't even have to do anything. She petitioned and got permission to put him on the celebrity list for TA Cemetery. And at that time, I don't know if it's still true today, but when the, the new list came out, he was number one. Oh, wow. That is amazing. I mean, you know, it's sometimes the goodness in people is, is astounding, but wonderful. Truly. Yeah. True. I, I just, you know, um, we will definitely have to put a link to your blog and also where you can find the cemetery too in the show notes in the blog. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, because I would like to go there now. I, <laughs> I just like to see it. Um, mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's kind of amazing. Um, I don't, I, I was definitely alive when he was, when he died. I mean, you know, but I was like a little child. So, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, um, and I think that, that more people need to know about the past and especially the, the fact that, I mean, it's part, one of our missions with black women in Europe is to let people know that, that black people have a long history in Europe. Mm -hmm. And it's not like a fly by night kind of a thing. We're not new to Europe. Exactly. You know, <laughs> exactly. It is a very long and very deep history, very long and very deep. Um, and so my U.S. nonprofit and my French nonprofit sort of worked together to promote Buford. The U.S. nonprofit was born um, to raise the money to do this art exhibition. And it really kicked off a life for the US nonprofit that was totally not conceived of when I started the nonprofit. We're actually coming up to our seventh anniversary. We will celebrate seven years of existence on October 1st of this year. So in just two weeks. And when we did the show, when we did the exhibition, again, all original paintings and works on paper, from seven different collections in the Paris area. We were able to fold in 
several strategic focus areas that my nonprofit works in. So the Wells International Foundation does work in the arts. We do STEAM education, which is science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. We do travel and study abroad. We do literacy, we do women's empowerment, and we do a sixth thing, which I won't talk about today because it has to do with my primary profession, which is veterinary pathology and toxicology. So just set that one for the side. But when we decided to do this show, when I decided to do this show, just again, very serendipitously, someone showed up in my life, a man named um, Dr. Brian Carter, who works at the University of Arizona, and he brings study abroad groups to Paris. And because of the my for-profit, Entree to Black Paris, we knew him because we were talking about, you know, potentially doing some tours for them. But when I told him about this art exhibition, he said, you know what? He said, um, I, I am the director of the Center for Digital Humanities, and I can bring students here and create an art app, an, an app, a digital app to work with your art exhibition. And mm -hmm. he brought six students here, five of whom who had never left the United States before to do this app called, um, it was called the Blipar. We used the, the Blipar platform at the time. It's sort of obsolete now, but because um, we did this in 2016, I should say that. So that's a, a while ago now, but um, his students came and they created uh, an augmented reality app so that when you scanned an image, whether you were standing in front of it or whether you scanned in the catalog, a little video would pop up and you would hear more about that particular work or what Buford was doing at that time when he painted this thing. And we had a spoken word artist do four of these augments. So he wrote a poem based on what he saw in this particular painting. And when you would scan that, his he would come up, you could see him reciting his spoken word poetry. Um, so that was a combination of the arts and STEAM because we had arts and technology. Mm -hmm and also travel and study abroad because these kids got credit for traveling over here to do this work. STEAM, I love that. That's, yeah. I mean, you know, it's much, much better than STEM um, <laughs> because we all appreciate the arts, but somehow they're not treated as if they're important. And that's, that's true. not true. We it's all, a tragedy. Yeah. It's a tragedy. I'm, par, I'm, par, I'm lucky that when I grew up in D.C. public schools, arts was a focus. I was in the D.C. Youth um, Choir, City Orchestra. We performed mm -hmm. the Kennedy Center. You know, my, I remember my sister, she's seven years older, would take me on Saturdays to the high school. People came from across the city where we rehearsed. You know, mm -hmm. arts were important. My mother is a, a PhD ethnomusicologist. My parents met at Howard as music majors. We can't, okay. I can't imagine... A world without the arts, you know, I studied dance, you know, all of it. It's important to science and math. It's all related. Yeah, it is. So it's all related. And you just blew my mind. Now we know another reason why you were a power lister. Both you and <laughs> Angela are former power listers. You're not former power lister, but a power lister. Because of all of the things that you're doing with your, your, your entree to Paris, the nonprofits on two continents. Mm -hmm. uh, how you dedicated your life to um, this known but should be better known artist. Mm -hmm. I'm so inspired um, after spending this 45 minutes with you. What do you think, Angela? Isn't, um, I'm, isn't it? It's wonderful. And I just wonder if that virtual, if that app with the augmented reality is still available. I love going to a museum or an exhibition and they have those because 
it's just so much more immersive, you know? It's true. It's true. Unfortunately, um, the platform that we used, you know how technology is, it advances and it advances and you need money to continue to upgrade. And we did not have the funds to upgrade it. So it doesn't work anymore, unfortunately. Um, But we are working on, and the Wells International Foundation is working with the the University of Arizona. We're applying for grants, NEH grants and National Science Foundation grants to do a complete virtual reality um, reproduction of the exhibition that we did here and additional um, augments so that we can have holistic, what do you call those? Not holistic, holographic people. Mm. See, I'm not a tech person. (laughs) Holographic people. Um, as part of this. And we're just, we're trying to find the funding. Wow. So maybe I'm like jumping too far ahead, but so you're going to have a museum in the metaverse where people can go in and and look at all of these things. Is that what you're saying sort of? Well, that would be one idea. Another idea that we have explored is placing, um, a number of the works that were in the original show, having them show up virtually at the new Delaney Museum at Beck. There Mm -hmm. is a Delaney Museum that is being created um, in Knoxville, um, right next door to the Beck Cultural Cultural Exchange Center, which is responsible for the African-American history of East Tennessee. That's an idea. We are working on a grant to you know, we're proposing that yeah. if we can get funding, we'll do it. There was another idea to do this, a similar thing at a new African-American museum um, in Tucson, which is going to, which is opening on the University of Arizona's campus. There are all kinds of ideas that we have out there. Funding is extremely difficult to come by. Um, and we just continue to try. We've, we've put in a lot. I think we're on our fifth, fifth grant right now, and we've just not been successful yet, but we are persistent, if nothing else, mm. and we're going to find. I was going to say somewhere. that's the thing with grants; they're hard. But you've got to apply to a hundred, and you know, and maybe you'll get one. You know, it's exactly. not, and 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 you know that, and it's great that you're not discouraged. And mm. are you also looking in the EU level grants, or just US? Um, we're looking at US uh, primarily because Buford is his sort of. How shall I say? He is he is making a comeback in the United States. Several months after we did the exhibition in Paris, a New York Times article was published based on an interview, or at least it started with an interview that I did with the writer, and and it was entitled "Buford Delaney Returns to the Scene." And Buford's work since we did that show has gotten increasing amounts of attention. The Knoxville Museum of Art, which at the time of our show only owned three pieces of Buford Delaney's work, now owns over 50. Wow. Several people from Knoxville came to Paris to see this exhibition. They had never seen so many Buford Delaney works in one place. We had over 40 works in our show, all original. They were like, we only have three. And when and I developed a walking tour an Entree to Black Paris walking tour called Buford Delaney's Montparnasse. And I showed them the plaques that we had installed and actually that Les Amis de Buford Delaney had had installed on two buildings in Montparnasse. 
And one woman literally cried. She said, we have nothing for Buford in Knoxville. Mm. That was at that time. They have really, they have stepped up now. There is a marker that honors Buford and his brother Joseph as painters near the place where their original home was. The Knoxville Museum of Art now owns 50 plus pieces of Buford Delaney's work. There was um, a major exhibition of his work in 2020, just before COVID hit, um, called Through the Unusual Door that focused on Buford's relationship with um, James Baldwin. And one of the paintings that was in our show was shown there. So, you know, we've done, we've done a lot. Wow, that is amazing. And uh, I agree with Adrian, you should try to get some EU grants and make it some kind of a cultural exchange or um, a virtual connection between something in France and some end um, in Knoxville. That would, there's a lot of, there's a lot of grants that do stuff like that in, in the EU. Um, I well, I need to talk to you ladies about that because, <laughs> yeah, because getting the U.S. money has been very, well, we haven't succeeded yet. Yeah. So, um, um, oh, I don't know that it would be any easier. I don't know it would be any easier in the EU, but just that it's available. But it's there's the a lot more. It's a lot of money. A lot it. more for arts in the, okay. in the EU. Um, yeah, we could definitely give you some ideas because this is... It's nice that he's having this renaissance so many years after his death. And I was wondering, does he have any family left? He does, but it's distant family. I think mm. the closest living relative is a great nephew. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. That's, that's very distant. Um, but yeah, because I think it's important to... to capture our history, document it, make it available for people to understand. And um, and yeah, the uh, people in the EU love art. So it's, <laughs> I mean, people in America love art too, but it's, it's at a different level yeah. in, the, in Europe of yeah. how people value art. Agreed. And yeah. It's sort of in the DNA. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just... I'm in love with that term steam because I'm going to, I'm going to start pushing that from now on steam. Um, Oh yeah. I, yeah, I value art highly and artist and it's just so great to hear this story. And I guess I'll have to start following your blog now. Um. (laughs) With pleasure. I'll tell you this, the the post that's going to, I know we're going over, um, but the post that's going to go up this Saturday is absolutely amazing. There is an, uh, a website that makes kaleidoscopes out of fine art. And they, they absolutely talk about the artist and the piece, you know, each piece. But then you have the option of clicking on a little circular gear, like in the middle of the page, and it will take you to another page where you can see this art turned into a kaleidoscope. Oh my gosh. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah. I mean, I was amazed too. I was just like, ah, I'm always looking for interesting things like that about Buford. And, you know, you just, every time I do, every time I find something like that, I learn so much, you know, it's, it's, it's just a never ending um, pursuit. This, wow. This man. 
when you began this journey, did you ever think that you would be where you are now in the? Yeah, I had no idea. I, in my wildest dreams, I could not have imagined this. Yeah, that's, yeah, I, I can't imagine that you did because that <laughs> so many things have happened. Um, mm-hmm. But it's all sounds like it's been uh, just getting better over time. It has, it has. And we've had the opportunity even to connect elementary school kids in Paris with elementary school kids in Knoxville through Buford's Art. Oh, wow. Um, we did a two-year program in, in partnership with the city of Paris. And we coupled a single elementary school, which again, serendipitously turned out to be located five minutes walk from Buford's last studio um, with kids from his hometown of Knoxville. And those Knoxville students, they were seven to 10 years old, mind you. They are doing lessons after school um, based on Buford's art and life. And they were meeting by Zoom like once a month. They got to know each other as well as share the art that they created in between Zoom calls. And after several months, the Knoxville students were able to come to Paris and meet their French counterparts here. Yeah, yeah, that's that's amazing. And those children have, I don't know, the art and the connection with people in another country. I mean, that's opened a whole gateway for them that mm-hmm. that they might not have ever or it might have taken them years, decades to, exactly. to form. Oh. Exactly, exactly. And it folded, it folded our arts and our travel and study abroad initiatives together quite beautifully, quite naturally, serendipitously. Yeah, well, this has been an amazing conversation and we're gonna include the links to everything that we can <laughs> So that people can be able to check this out. And I, I'm looking forward to checking everything out. I, I have to say um, two of my favorite things, history and art. So, (laughs) all right. So, well, we could just chat forever then. (laughs) Yeah. You, you hit all the right, the right notes. Um, (laughs) Definitely. Uh, Thank you so much, Monique, for joining us today. And uh, my pleasure. Happy Black History Month. Thank you. And same to you. We'll, we'll, everybody will hear you next, or you'll hear us the next episode. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.